Welcome to the Talking Leaves podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Kyra, and we are returning for episode four of our mini-series about Homer's The Odyssey. Last episode, we closely read the first four pages of book one, and we really dug into the details of the story and the language itself. In this episode, we will read most of the rest of book one, which places us, the audience, in the position of a fly on the wall of Odysseus's home in Ithaca. We see the gray-eyed goddess, Athena, disguise herself and talk with Telemachus about the future. Let's begin on line 123, which for our class is on page 4, with the words, She bent to tie her beautiful sandals on, ambrosial, golden, that carry her over water or over endless land on the wings of the wind. Here we can see the description of the goddess Athena as she bends to tie on her beautiful sandals, which are called ambrosial, which if we look at this definition, that word means extremely pleasing and they're golden. Clearly these sandals are those of a style and goddess. And not only are they beautiful, they are also magical in that they, quote, carry her over water or over endless land. Kind of like Hermes sandals, but maybe without the wings. We also receive a really nice visual here with the description of her sandals carrying her over, quote, the wings of the wind. So that image of her just effortlessly flying over things on the wind like a true goddess would. In addition to this almost angelic description of Athena flying across the world on these beautiful golden sandals, we also get this image of her with the, quote, great haft of her spear in hand. That bronze-shod spear this child of power can use to break in wrath long battle lines of fighters. Looking at this line closer, just like we did with the line about the sandals, we see the great, quote, haft of her spear, which really means it's the part of the spear that she holds, the handle almost. And the bronze-shod spear really means it's bronze-footed, or it's a spear that's covered with bronze. Remember, this is the end of the Bronze Age, so bronze is a pretty big deal. Along with this depiction of her beautiful and powerful spear, we also see what the spear lets her do, just like with the sandals. This spear lets her break, in wrath or in anger, long battle lines of fighters. This really goes to show and highlight Athena's power as the goddess of battle and of war strategy. She can use this tool, this spear, to help her change the course of a war or a battle. This all really highlights how powerful Athena is. Then in the next stanza at the bottom of this page, we see her, quote, flashing down from Olympus's height to stand in Ithaca before the manor. And the manor is capitalized, so we can take it to mean this is a proper noun, which means it's a real place and this might actually be its name. And for us as the audience, as the readers of this, we can take this to mean that this is probably the most important house on Ithaca, which we would know to be Odysseus's house because he's the king of Ithaca. And as it says, quote, she seemed a family friend, the Taphian captain Mentes. Right here, Athena does something tricky that gods and goddesses do. She can't just show up in her goddess form in front of all of these people. If you know anything about Greek mythology, then you'll know that they often disguise themselves because mere mortals, mere humans cannot look at their true god form. So Athena disguises herself. And when it says she seemed a family friend, 
That's code for she changed her appearance so she would look like a human. And not only that, she would look like this man, Mentes, who supposedly, or perhaps in actuality, knew Odysseus's family and Odysseus before he went missing. And as she stands before the manor, she is waiting to be invited in. She looks around with her spear in hand and before her eyes, quote, she found the lusty suitors casting dice inside the gate at ease on the hides of oxen, oxen they had killed. In reading this, we can get insight into what Athena thinks about the suitors. We already remember from previous pages of book one that she wasn't very happy with how these suitors were treating Penelope or Telemachus. And here we can see through her eyes or through the narrator's description of what she sees that she definitely has a negative opinion of the suitors. She's tired of them taking things that don't belong to them. Specifically, she's tired of them taking Odysseus's belongings. <laughs> On page five, it starts by describing what's going on with the suitors and even what's going on behind and around the suitors. As it says, they're the suitors' own retainers, which means the suitors' own servants, quote, made a busy sight with houseboys mixing bowls of water and wine or sopping water up in sponges, wiping tables to be placed about in hall or butchering whole carcasses for roasting. In this stanza, we really get a description of what's going on in the scene. From these lines, we can visualize what's happening. All of these servants, the houseboys, the maids, the retainers, they're all getting ready for something. They're getting ready for a feast. They're roasting whole carcasses of meat, which means that there are a lot of people that they need to feed. And then in the next stanza, we are brought back to Athena because Telemachus, before anyone else, sees this guest standing there. And Telemachus had been, quote, sitting there unhappy among the suitors, a boy daydreaming. This is our first look into Telemachus in his own existence. He is no longer somebody being referred to by someone else. Instead, we see him and he's very unhappy with the suitors being there. As these lines tell us though, he's just a boy. So even though his dad has been gone for nearly 20 years, which would make Telemachus himself about 20 years old, he is still a boy. He hasn't matured. He hasn't grown up. He is just a boy daydreaming, waiting for someone else to come along and save him, as we see in these next lines, which say, quote, What if his great father came from the unknown world and drove these men like dead leaves through the place, recovering honor and lordship in his own domains? Then he who dreamed in the crowd gazed out at Athena. These lines describe Telemachus's daydream. He wants his father to return home and move these suitors out of his house like dead leaves. So he wants Odysseus to return home and sweep them out and leave no trace behind to clean up their mess in a way. Because Telemachus cannot do this for himself. And he who dreamed, aka Telemachus, finally looks up surfacing from his daydream, and he sees this guest, who we know is Athena, waiting to be welcomed in. In the next stanza, we see Telemachus get irked with himself or annoyed with himself that he had kept a visitor waiting. Remember that Greek custom and culture of Xenia. They needed to welcome anyone who came to their door as if they were a god in disguise. And there's a little bit of irony or comedy in that based on what we know. It is a goddess in disguise. 
So he walks up to this guest, grabs the guest by the hand, takes the guest's spear, and he greets this guest, quote, Greetings, strangers. Welcome to our feast. There will be a time to tell your errands later. In other words, he's saying, hello, welcome, come in. There's no rush to tell us exactly what your business is being here. Just relax, enjoy, have a feast. You can tell us all about your business for being here later on. Moving forward in the next section, he led the way and Pallas Athena, which is her title, followed him into the lofty hall. He puts her spear up, and we get a nice visual of the fact that Odysseus's belongings are still treasured. They're still there in a place of honor. He puts this guest spear next to them. He goes out and shakes out a splendid coverlet or a splendid blanket, and he sets her on a throne. Again, showing how seriously they take this concept of Xenia, of welcoming guests into their home and treating them like gods and goddesses. Even before Telemachus really gets to know who this is, and even before he perhaps guesses that this actually is a goddess in disguise, he is treating this person as if they are a god or goddess. He puts Athena, or this guest, in a throne, whereas he only gets, quote, an armchair. And not only does he treat her to a throne, but he sort of pulls her away from the rest of the suitors to distance him and this guest from the din or the noise or the suitors' riot. He wants to get this guest away from the suitors so he can ask her news about his father. The last part on this page goes through a ritual of a maid bringing them things that they need in order to eat, a finger bowl filled with water so they can clean their hands before they eat, and then a jug filled with drinks, a polished table to their sides, really showing and describing the, the detail of the finery and how thoroughly Telemachus is taking care of his guest. And if we look at the first stanza on page six, the larder mistress with her tray came by and served them generously. A carver came by and gave them meat. Someone else gave them cups of gold and the steward filled those cups again and again, really giving us details and description of how well Telemachus is taking care of this guest, who also just happens to be a goddess in disguise. Continuing on page six, we see the suitors, the quote, young bloods trooping into their own seats on thrones or easy chairs. Again, this description does not do the suitors any favor. It shows them as young bloods. So similar to Telemachus, they are just boys. They're children. They come quote, trooping in. And that word trooping is usually reserved for military or for soldiers. So they're not acting like ordinary guests. It's almost like an invasion. And they too are seated on thrones or easy chairs. Really, they seem to be taking advantage of this cultural norm for the Greeks. There are some lines describing the process of eating the food for these suitors. These guests being taken care of by the attendants, by houseboys, by maids, they're being given everything and so much of everything. And they just, quote, lay their hands upon the ready feast and thought of nothing more really showing that they're taking advantage. They're not very thankful or thoughtful for what they have. They are not recognizing that they are just taking from someone else. Everything that they are getting is not their own. They've not done nothing to deserve this. And then from there, they were, quote, mindful of dance and song that are the grace of feasting. Once they were done eating, they asked for a song and dance. They had a herald come in with his harp with his instrument who started playing and singing and a clear song rose. Really getting into this description again of what's going on. 
and of the song that's being played for them after they ate. And it is then, once the suitors have eaten, once this herald, this musician comes out to start to provide entertainment, it is then that Telemachus turns to this guest, who we know as Athena in disguise, and he asks, Dear guest, will this offend you if I speak? It is easy for men like these to like these things, harping and song. They have an easy life, scot-free, eating livestock of another. A man whose bones are rotting somewhere now, white in the rain on dark earth where they lie, or tumbling in the groundswell of the sea. We can see here how Telemachus himself even resents these suitors, and this confirms the ideas that we've been building about them. These suitors are definitely going beyond the normal cultural acceptance of what guests should do. They're going through everything that's being given to them. They have such an easy life. They are giving nothing in return. And we also see that Telemachus is doubting the fact that Odysseus is still alive. So even though earlier he was daydreaming of his father coming home, here we're seeing that he really sees that as just a dream. He thinks that his father is probably dead. His bones are rotting somewhere or his bones are tumbling around in the sea. His father has been gone for nearly 20 years, and he should have been home a long time ago, but for some reason, he's not. So Telemachus isn't sure whether he's alive or not. Telemachus is looking for word or news of his dad, and he goes on to say, quote, but he's lost, he's come to grief and perished, and there's no help for us in someone's hoping he still may come home. That sun has long gone down. Essentially, Telemachus says Odysseus must be dead or he's never coming home. There is no reason to continue to hope that he may one day return. Really showing this cynical idea that Telemachus recognizes that maybe his daydream when we first saw him is unrealistic. And those are dreams of a child. So he's battling with having hope and wanting his dad to come home and saving him from the suitors, but at the same time recognizing it's probably just a daydream. If he's not home now, Odysseus will probably never be home. It does no good to hope. At the very bottom of page six and going on to page seven, Telemachus turns from this cynical idea of my dad must be dead, he's never coming home, there's no use hoping, to this idea of where are you from guest, why are you here? Really starting to question why the guest has come to see them. And maybe hoping to learn from Mentes, who is Athena in disguise, has heard anything about Odysseus. And Athena, the gray-eyed goddess, responds and says, quote, I can account most clearly for myself. And she goes on with the story of who Mentes, this person she's disguised herself as, really is. I kind of question what Athena is doing here. Is she just making this up? Is Mentes even a real person? But then I remember she's a goddess and she favors Odysseus, so she probably would choose somebody that they might actually know. But to be honest, does it even really matter? Is Mentes a real person or is he not? Would Odysseus know Mentes or not? It ultimately doesn't matter because Telemachus was a baby when Odysseus was there, so he wouldn't know the difference if this person knew Odysseus or not. Anyways, Athena goes on to really get this backstory going for Mentes and why Mentes would have any credibility in sharing what he thinks or knows about Odysseus. Remember, Athena's motivation for coming is to motivate Telemachus to grow up and go out to leave Ithaca to try to find a word of his father. So she has this motive going on. So whatever she tells, whatever story she gives him is ultimately serving that motivation. And around line 237, she says, As for my sailing here, the tale was that your father had come home. Therefore, I came. I see the gods delay him. But never in this world is Odysseus dead. 
only detained somewhere on the wide sea, upon some island with wild islanders. Savages they must be to hold him captive. In this stanza, Athena explains why she came, and Athena Asmentes says, I came because I heard that your dad had come home. And we know that Athena doesn't actually think this. She knows what's really happening. Odysseus is trapped on Calypso's island, so we know she's making up this story. But why? Remember, she wants Telemachus to go out and find word of his father. So she's making up a story that he'll believe. By giving Telemachus what he wants, word about his father nearly being home, it pushes Telemachus towards her ultimate goal of getting him to go and search for word of his father. And she's throwing massive shade at Calypso. She says that whoever is keeping Odysseus must be savages and wild islanders. She clearly is not a fan of Calypso's. And at the end of page seven, we learn that Athena, disguised as Mentes, tells Telemachus that he knows that Mentes knows Odysseus will not, quote, be long away from Ithaca. Here, Athena, Mentes, really confirms Telemachus's first impulse to hope that his father will come home. And as we look at the top of page eight, we see her suggest that he, Odysseus, is a prisoner. Though he be in chains, he'll scheme a way to come. He can do anything. We can really see how much Athena likes Odysseus. So even though he's captive, even though he's in chains, whether they're literal chains or figurative imaginary chains, he's trapped somewhere. But it doesn't matter because he's Odysseus and he can find a way out of anything. Don't you worry, Telemachus, she says. He'll be home. We've come to the end of our episode. We'll have one more episode on book one, so stay tuned for that. We will look at Athena's parting advice to Telemachus and hear firsthand from the suitors themselves. And we'll also get our first and nearly only glimpse at Penelope, Odysseus's wife. Special thanks to Robert Fitzgerald's translation of Homer's The Odyssey for sources and references during this podcast. 